0: From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio. Fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. For 40 years, Our society has been horrified by active shooter attacks at schools, churches, and other locations. And even though we've learned the right way to respond, in most cases, we have failed, even refused, to create policies to lower the body count. On Saturday, March 23rd, Buckeye Firearms Association will host a special seminar called Active Shooter and Response, where you'll discover how to ignore the most common advice, and do what needs to be done to stop the threat and survive. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by active shooter expert, Ed Monk. Hi Ed, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Dean. good to be here.
0: Ed, we're really excited that you'll be coming to Central Ohio in March to present your seminar called Active Shooter Threat and Response. You're going to be talking about what our society has been doing wrong over the past 40 years and what needs to change to deal with these threats and also what ordinary people can do to survive these deadly incidents. Now, the seminar is on Saturday. March 23rd, 9 to 3, at the McCoy Center in Hilliard. Tickets are regularly $99, but we're marking those way down to 69 So if you want to get that early bird price, get your tickets now. We have about 100 people signed up, still have some seats. If you want those tickets, get them now. Go to the website, BuckeyeFirearms.org. We've got a banner right at the top of the website. You can click on that. Or just go to the event link that lists all our events for the year. Now, Ed, before we start talking about active killers, can you tell us a little about your background? Where are you from and what is your
1: experience? Sure. Well, I'm from Arkansas and that's now where I'm back home living again. I retired from the army in 2007 as a lieutenant colonel and a battalion commander. So I left here at 18, spent 24 years active duty in the military, uh, left there I left the Army and immediately taught high school, uh, public high school for four years, and then came back here to Arkansas where my brother and I run a gun training facility, and I am a part-time police officer in our city here. But the important thing, uh, a lot of people think, well, maybe not the Army, but if you're in law enforcement, then you know all about this active shooter thing, and that's really just not that true. I've researched this topic of the active shooter problem for the last 16 years and i've been providing training on it for about the last 13 and the reason i got into it was my shift from the army to the public school system where i was told as a teacher that my job was to just keep the kids in the classroom and hold them there while the shooter got closer and closer and then came in my room and and shot them and i wasn't allowed to let them run i wasn't allowed to fight and i just thought that was the craziest thing i'd ever heard so that's what got me into researching this but I, I work with, talk to, train schools, churches, law enforcement agencies, armed citizens, and I do conferences uh, like yours. This will probably be, in the last year, I've probably done 10 or more conferences.
0: So, Ed, uh, it's your belief that we've been failing as a society to effectively uh, respond to, to active shooters. And, and you've just, you know, uh, talked about that a little bit. We seem to keep seeing the same behavior from these active killers. They keep doing the same thing. But we keep doing the same thing to respond to them, schools, churches, businesses, politicians. It's like we're locked into this doom loop that never changes. What is it that we're doing wrong?
1: Well, yeah, it's kind of like a doctor that keeps treating his patients with leeches and they keep dying. And it's wrong to say, maybe I'm not putting the leeches in the right place. Maybe I'm not using enough leeches. Maybe the leeches aren't the answer. Or are they Major League Baseball pitcher, that every time he throws you a high fastball, you put it into the second deck of left field. Eventually, you should learn, okay, the high fastball is not the pitch to throw to you. So I I think the biggest lesson, the biggest reason we're failing is we haven't learned what I call lesson number two. Lesson number one, we supposedly learned after 1999 and the Columbine attack where the initial cops surrounded the building and waited on SWAT. Well, we learned as a country and learned within law enforcement, supposedly, that SWAT is not the answer to an active shooter. Because we can't, no matter how well-trained and well-equipped SWAT is to handle an active shooter, we can't afford the time to wait that it takes to get them. So even though they're better equipped and trained than an average cop, we, we just we can't wait on it. So now what we have to learn is what I call lesson two, which is we can't even wait on a cop. It would take probably, in most cases, 30 to 90 minutes to get a SWAT team there. That's far too long to let the active shooter shoot people. Well, it's going to take probably five to 12 minutes to get a cop there. That's far too long to let an active shooter shoot people. there. So I think that's the biggest thing. And we're not taking math and time into account of our response plan. A recent, well, a year ago, exactly a year ago, I was helping some schools up in Iowa that were going to have armed staff. And the police chief at one of the school districts at the city where one of the schools was wrote an open letter in the newspaper opposing the idea of having armed staff at the school in his jurisdiction. And his main reason was, listen, we have a multi-county SWAT team that's far better equipped and far better trained to handle an active shooter than some PE teacher, principal, or calculus teacher in your school. And I completely agree with the chief. The the SWAT team is better uh, equipped and trained than any adult in that school, but the problem is they're not there, and he never addressed in his letter how much time it would take to get the SWAT team there. That's what we're not doing. We're not factoring in the time, and another problem is, you know, you and I, I know I do, I like to outsource problems that I'm not comfortable with. When the septic tank at my training facility fills up, I'm uncomfortable dealing with that, so I call a guy in a pump truck to come deal with that, but that's okay because no one's getting killed every few seconds that I'm waiting on the pump truck, right? But if I flush my toilet at nine o'clock on Sunday night and it starts backing up, I, a, a plumber is much more prepared and equipped and trained to deal with that than I am. But I can't wait on a plumber. I have to get my hands dirty. So schools, uh, most and businesses too, but kind of focus on schools. They want to outsource the problem of violence. They don't want to do violence. And that's what got me into this when I left a career, which was pretty much planning for violence, wartime violence, into public education where they didn't want to deal with it, so they outsourced it to law enforcement. Well, if it if the attack is still going on, when the law enforcement shows up, they, they will eventually act, and it will eventually stop. But the problem is how many people get shot. So what people don't want to hear is you can't outsource this problem if you want a low victim count. They're refusing to accept the only plan that'll work. And by work, I mean get a low victim count. I, I can't find anybody that says they'd rather have a high victim count than a low victim count at an active shooter attack. So the only thing that'll give us a low victim count is if we, the people there, the intended victims at the Walmart, the church, the school, the mall, the workplace, wherever it is he shows up to shoot us, we have to immediately counterattack and fight him because he's going to shoot somebody every few seconds. And it's not a guarantee, but you got a pretty good chance of keep having a low victim count, which I'm going to call single digit victim count, zero to nine. If you stop him within the first 30 seconds, there is absolutely no way to call somebody who's not currently here and get them here within 30 seconds, which means we have to stop this thing. The only response that'll work is immediate counterattack, which means violence, and people just don't want to do that. They they instead adopt things. They want to outsource the solution to law enforcement, and they want to adopt things they're comfortable with, like the lockdown drill. They're very comfortable with a lockdown drill, even though it doesn't work, because all it ha- requires them to do is turn a door lock knob, a doorknob lock, pull down the shade on the window of their door, turn out the lights and be quiet. Well, that doesn't cause any stress on anybody, but locking yourselves in a room, and that's what we're telling schools, that's what the government's telling them and a lot of experts and a lot of organizations are telling them. If you just turn out the lights and keep staying behind a locked door, you'll be okay. Well, Parkland shot 18 people inside their classrooms. He was out in the hall. He shot through the door. So locking yourself in your classroom, if your doors and walls aren't bulletproof, we're not going to help you. So they they like to I go to these conferences for school safety and there's all kinds of vendors in there selling them higher fences, see-through backpacks, panic buttons, apps for their phone, all kinds of stuff that won't help them, won't save any lives on the day he shows up, but that's what they're doing. So we're refusing to see the time aspect is the biggest mistake that we're making.
0: But I'm I'm still kind of confused about why it's so hard to change our response. You know, I'm I'm involved with the local fire department as a volunteer. And I know that every time they have a fire, every time they have a rescue, every time they do anything, they learn something. They, they have a meeting afterwards, they talk about it, they change their processes, and they get better, better and better over time. So what is it about this active killer thing? Is it just that they don't they don't have the chance to, to respond to it often enough? Is it denial? What is it that you know fire, firemen can learn? from what they do. EMS can learn from what they do, but in incidents like this, nobody seems to be learning the lesson. What's going on?
1: Well, fire people get into the business, whether they're paid or volunteer, they get into business to fight fire. So they're all about fighting fire and getting better at fighting fire. But schools, and schools is just one of the places active shooter shows up, they do not want violence. You know, military, we train violence. You don't get in the military if you're anti-violence. So like you said after every real or simulated battle we would stop sit down and talk about what happened what do we need to change what successes what did, where did what failed why why did it fail so yeah we do the exact same thing but the problem with schools and and other places they're just they don't want to admit that they have to take charge of the violence so in fire I, I don't have much any fire experience but I doubt any firefighter would go to any organization and tell them listen you're not capable of dealing with this so you just let the fire burn until we get there the fireman would say no if you can grab a fire extinguisher and put it out by all means do it you know we would love to show up and you've already got the fire out we would love that right because it's there's less damage the quicker you put out the fire we got to start telling people the same thing about the shooter but unfortunately we have a lot of law enforcement that says no that's our job you don't handle that you hunker down turn out the lights hide if you can and let us come deal with it that lets too many people get shot so that's what we have to tell them is, hey, what we want is the active shooter stopped and you're already prepping casualties before the first ambulance cop or fire truck gets on your property. That's the only way we have a decent chance of a low victim count, of causing a low victim count.
0: So give us one or two examples that schools, churches, or you know, mall, whatever, that they can do differently to effectively handle an active killer when one of these situations
1: happens. Well, it's a 180-degree turn. It's not a slight deviation. It's a 180-degree turn. we got to stop what we're currently doing, what the federal government and most organizations are recommending, which is, hey, hunker down, do the best you can, hide until the professionals come and deal with it. We have to stop that and turn the other way, which is we will stop it. Employees, workers, students, we here will stop it. Now, everybody doesn't have to fight but somebody has to fight. But that's a good thing about active shooters is they don't go out in in the middle of the woods to do this. They attack a public place. So usually 20, 30, maybe hundreds of people. Well, we only need one or two out of that group of intended victims. We only need one or two people in that group, that crowd, to counterattack and stop him. And there's, uh, I give a list of armed and unarmed. Now, armed is a lot better. So allowing people there to be armed It it gives the best chance of a low victim count, but places that either can't because of law or choose to because of policy be armed, I show them a slide of unarmed victims fighting back against an active shooter and successfully stopping them. Now, they're, they're not successful as often as with a gun, obviously, because of the advantages of the gun, but that's what we have to do is encourage and let people be armed and tell them not only will we begrudgingly allow violence, we encourage immediate, ruthless, deadly violence against an active shooter should he start in this store, this school, this mall, this church, this workplace.
0: One of the things you hear a lot is run, hide, fight. And, you know, they talk about that on college campuses. They talk about it anytime that they're discussing an incident like this, run, hide, fight. I can, I can sort of see the um, the logic to that. I've told my wife, for example, you know, if we're at a restaurant, um, I'll say, you know, if something happens, you need to know where the exits are and get out, move and keep moving. What's wrong with run, hide, fight when we're talking about these active shooter incidents in schools or wherever?
1: Yeah, run, hide, fight's what the federal government's been uh, pushing for 30-plus years, and all of the major organizations that you can contract to come in and work with you for the active shooter, they, their words may not be run, hide, fight, but they're, that's what it means. And all of them that I'm aware of, including the federal government, they say, it says run, hide, fight, but fight, when, they, when you get to fight and read what they say, they say only as a last resort. So say schools, for instance, you know, hunker down, lock the door. If he breaks through and gets in your room, then okay, I guess you're going to have to fight him. We got to turn that around. We got to put fight first. So what I teach is fight, flee, barricade. We have to fight first because the sooner somebody fights them, the lower the victim count will be. So let's we're in different places here, but let's assume you and I were in a room here with a bunch of other people, and somebody walked in in the intent on shooting all of us. Why would stopping his attack be the last thing we consider? Why wouldn't it be the first thing we consider? So fight is always the best option. Now again, everybody doesn't have to fight. All we need is somebody to fight. So we encourage anybody there who's capable and able to fight. And if we have control over employees, etc., maybe we prep the battlefield and we have tools there needed to fight. So fight is the absolute first option to consider. There's only one other choice, and that's flee, which means to get away from the shooter as, as fast. That's crawling, going out a window, running, jumping, slithering, however you can get away. So these choices are, are opposite. Either go find and, and, and stop evil by being violent to him or get away from him. That's that, that's an opposite choice, and that kind of decision is, is easiest to make under severe stress. Either go find him and stop him or get away from him. Those are your only two choices. There's one other option, and that's barricade. And that's not a choice. That's what you do because you don't have a choice. I am incapable or unwilling to fight. I have no escape. I'm cornered. Then, reluctantly we barricade but then even if you barricade you have to have a fight plan because he could break through your barricade schools in most most places now are doing the exact opposite barricade first and then reluctantly if he gets into your classroom then maybe fight that's not going to stop him in the first 30 seconds and that's what we've got to do to go to a low victim count we have to have fight first
0: do you think some of this has to do with lawyers I mean you know we're such a litigious society We sue people for everything. of the schools just afraid that they're going to get sued into the ground?
1: I don't really think so, because where they're going to get sued into the ground is if they walk in there and you let him shoot 30 of your people. And most of, I would say, 95% of schools in America, their policy is not, it doesn't say this, these aren't the words in their policy, but this is basically their policy. We're going to let the active shooter shoot us up until police arrive and stop him. We're just going to let him shoot us. That's when you're going to get sued. You know, they've tried to sue Parkland, which is over five years ago now. They've tried to sue them out of existence. You can bet Uvalde will be the same thing. That's when you're going to get sued out of existence. If he comes there and you stop him in the first 20 seconds, I'm not saying no one's going to file a lawsuit, but man, that's, that's a huge success as far as active shooter things go. But that's some of the excuses they use. When I was a brand new teacher, At a very good school, and again, these leaders I had, they weren't bad people, they cared about the kids, but they were just completely unable, no experience, no desire to talk about violence. So I said, wait a minute, instead of staying in the building, why can't we go out the window and run away? And they said, no, we can't do that because we'd lose accountability during an active shooter. That's what they were worried about. And then I said, well, if you're going to make me stay in the room, which I wouldn't have done, but if you're going to make me stay in the room, then what? When he comes in, instead of hiding in the corner, let's, I'm going to fight him. I had 11th graders. I had football players. We're going to fight this guy. No, they told me point blank. We cannot have a policy that says we'll fight because our insurance rates will go up, which is absolutely crazy. Uh, your insurance rates will go up if he comes in my room and kills all 28 of the kids and me in this room. So I think they they use that all the time, but no, that won't that will uh increase their liability and in fact it'll it'll lower it
0: you know ed one of the myths about active killers is that they're well trained they're ready to do battle that they have tactical gear like ballistic armor and i'm just wondering if any of that's really true
1: no with very very few exceptions they are extremely untrained now they may or may not have armor uh, but they're extremely untrained and so they're not that hard of a threat to fight. Now, are they dangerous? Yes, of course. They're an evil, crazy person with a gun willing to kill people. But generally, they're a punk that brought dad's gun to school or to the mall or to the church in general. They're not that well trained. I don't have, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I don't have one example of where a good person with a gun, a cop or a citizen, attacked and shot an armed. Uh, an, an active shooter and their gun malfunction. Could have happened. I don't have an example of it. I have a long list of active shooters who had gun malfunctions and troubles with reloads. I got two active shooters that couldn't make the first shot come out of a gun that they had. So, no, these these people are not well-trained. Now, we, God forbid we may see a very well-trained one in the future. They may or may not have body armor. If they're a school shooter, there's a very low chance of body armor. Uh, less than half of all active shooters have had body armor. But that's not really a problem. We can stop them, uh, and there's been several cases where we've stopped them even with body armor. We just have to have the tools there to do it.
0: The media and opponents of armed citizens always are saying that, you know, ordinary people are not able to take on active killers. I think that's part of the thing with schools is that they're always saying, you know, that they're there to teach. they're they're experts at teaching. They're not experts at fighting. but the the fear seems to be that they're going to shoot the wrong people. Right, if we allow a teacher or a janitor or the vice principal to have a gun in the school, you're going to have all this chaos. The wrong people are going to get shot. Has that ever happened?
1: An armed citizen has never shot the wrong person responding to an active shooter. Never. Cops have done it several times. Cops have shot each other. Cops, Cops accidentally shot another cop three times responding to an active shooter two of those times they killed the other cop by accident borderline bar and grill in california and prince george county maryland if you want to look it up so armed citizens actually have a much better safer track record than do cops responding to active shooters which is counterintuitive to a lot of people because they think cops are so well trained on their guns and anybody that's been in law enforcement will tell you the average cop is not well trained They're, they're minimally trained there are some cops that go above and beyond but most cops only shoot once or twice a year when they're required to to get their paycheck. And so when if they say it's just too dangerous for armed citizens, I would say, show me one example. I'll show you about six examples where cops shot the wrong person. Show me one example where an armed citizen shot the wrong person. And I would say, what was the cop before he was a cop or she? Well, it was just a human being, a, a person that had not yet taken the tra- – well, so you can take a human being that's not a cop and give them the training to make them – so proficient enough on a gun, you'll let them carry it in school, right? Well, we just give that same training to the, the armed staff member of the school. And you have to laugh a little bit on the inside when someone suggests to you that someone who barely passed high school and barely passed the police academy definitely should carry a, a gun on campus, but the AP calculus teacher is just too stupid to figure out a Glock. It makes no common sense. It's all about emotion and politics. My brother was a master-level IDPA shooter. And if you don't know what that means, it means he, he's pretty darn quick and accurate with a handgun. He was a master-level IDPA shooter before he became a police officer. All of his police gun training did absolutely nothing to increase or help his skill. He was already well past what law enforcement training would give him. So he was – and he was a teacher. And then he retired from teaching and became a cop. Uh, so he was – he was, he would have been just as good a protection of those kids carrying as a teacher – that he was the minute he put on a badge and took an oath and came back in uniform. And the whole burdening teachers thing, and this is, like I said, I've taught high school for four years. This helps me when I go in and I talk to schools. Of course, it's going to be volunteers, so we're not forcing this on anybody. And yeah, everybody's busy in a school. The, the teachers are busy teaching, the counselors are counseling, the principals are principaling, the coaches are blowing whistles, the janitors are sweeping, until the first shot of an active shooter attack. Once that first shot goes off, none of those people are doing any of those things anymore. Everybody's job, to include the students, every single person's job in that school at that point is to stop the killing of innocent people. And what is the absolute best tool to do that? Well, it would be a gun. So the, the gun won't be a burden once the active shooter shows up. It'll be a godsend. Uh, it'll be something that we're so happy that we have. And I train cops all across the country. And sometimes I'll ask them, so you get a call to go to a school for an active shooter, and you get there and you can hear the shooting in the building. You know he's in there. Are you going to take the pistol out of your holster and leave it in your car when you go in there to get the active shooter? And of course, they'll give me a really stupid look like, are you crazy? It would be insanity to, to intentionally go fight an active shooter without your gun. I said, well, that's what we're asking people in the school to do until you get there. That is insane. But that's what we've been doing, and that's what people keep fighting. And so what I get a lot is, I don't have any but any other solution. I just have people don't want what math clearly shows us will work. You're crazy if you want to have armed people, armed school staff. Okay, well, what's your what's your plan to get a, a single-digit victim count? Well, it's not what you're saying. I'm not going to arm staff. Okay, I know what you're not going to do, but what are you going to do? Show me a plan that's mathematically and historically supported to get single-digit victim count. They don't have it. All they know is they're not going to do what math shows is very simply the only thing that'll give us a good chance at a low victim count.
0: When it comes to training, the, the ordinary police officer who might show up at an event like this, do they have special training, active shooter training? Because it isn't most of it just like like when they have to qualify every year, they're standing there and they're just shooting at a target, right?
1: Most police qualification that I'm aware of, again, I don't have visibility nationwide on all the different agencies but i i fairly safe to say i think most agencies it's once or twice a year uh yeah shooting a standard qualification at some target at some different distances and the joke among gun trainers and especially those in law enforcement we call it a sobriety test or part of the no cop left behind law to where it's unbelievably simple here in arkansas when I first got back here and became a cop here in 2010, we had to shoot six rounds at the 25-yard line with our pistol as part of our qualification. So many cops couldn't do that, that they took, took away the 25-yard line. So now we only have to shoot back to 15.
0: Here in Ohio, they have something called OPATA, and uh, I asked some police officers what training they have on active shooters when they graduate from the academy, and I was told there's essentially nothing. They do have some firearms training, but they have no training whatsoever when it comes to handling active shooters. I've been through some training like that, and I know it's very, very different. You know, it's not just standing and shooting a target. So where do people get this idea that cops, and and I'm not ragging on cops, I love cops, but where do people get this idea that they are so highly trained with firearms?
1: I, I don't know where they get it. We're just conditioned that way. Until I got into both gun training and law enforcement, I probably would have assumed the same thing. But, and listen, I, of course I'm pro law enforcement in general because I are one, but it, it doesn't, and I, I'm a trainer. I make money off of training. I spend money every year. I go take training. So I'm, I'm pro training, but, I think we put too much emphasis on the training. I don't think training is that important. It is important, but it's not as important as being there and having the willingness to do it. Eli Dicken, fairly recently over near Indianapolis, the 22-year-old young man in a mall, had no police training, no military experience, and had really no formal training. His granddad just taught him to shoot a pistol when he was little. But he happened to be carrying it in the mall when the nutcase active shooter kicked off with an AR-15, and Eli shot him down. Holy cow, he didn't ha- he didn't have any police training. Well, he didn't need police training. One person shooting another person is not a police unique event. Vic Stacy in Texas didn't need police training. David George, a pastor in Washington, a civilian, didn't need any police training. John Hurley in Colorado, Stephen Williford in Texas. I can give you a list of armed citizens that had no police or military experience, but they were they were carrying a gun when it happened and they pulled out the gun and they shot the other person. So I, I don't think it's that important. And you, you say, well, who who did have a whole bunch of police training? Well, the deputy at Parkland, the school resource officer at Parkland, five plus years ago, he had over 30 years of police training. And it didn't matter because he wasn't going to go in the building. And this the first seven other deputies that showed up didn't go in the building. So how much police training you have, it really, there's three things that have make a very good chance of a low victim count. Do you have a gun? Are you close enough to hear or see the the first shot, so you're very close, and are you willing to act? If you have those three things, you have a very good chance at a low victim count. It's about an 86% chance of a low victim count if those three things exist. And I'm all for police stopping the active shooter if the shooter starts right in front of the police officer, but I'm not in favor of waiting five or six or eight minutes for the police officer to get there.
0: So what's your opinion of Uvalde? Because that's in the news now. They're investigating it. You know, lawsuits are starting. And this was a pretty bad situation. It's just that it's in the news now. People are thinking about it. And I'm just wondering what your opinion is.
1: And Uvalde, a whole bunch, we're going to try as a country to learn the wrong lesson from Uvalde, just like we tried really hard to learn the wrong lesson at Parkland. The wrong lesson we learned at Parkland is we had a coward SRO that did not go in, and that was the problem. No, that wasn't the problem. The active shooter had already shot 24 people before the the, the the coward SRO got to the outside of the building, heard the shooting, and decided not to go in. So, yeah, had we had a brave SRO at Parkland, we could have kept it in the 20s, but that's still way too many because the cop wasn't there when it started. He had to be called. He was in another building. He had to travel. And the same thing with Parkland. The, the first cops that went in were courageous and brave. The first cops that went in ran down the hall towards the gun, the sounds of the gun. But then when the, when the shooter shot from inside classroom 111 back out into the hall where the cops were, then they broke contact and that's when they retreated and they didn't re-aggress initially. The first several that went in that building was doing great work, but then they just backed up and then, They waited for over an hour before they went in there and killed him. So that's what we focus on is that hour wait. But the video's out there. You can watch the video. He shot roughly 125 or 135 rounds before the first cop ever got in the building. He shot less than 30 after the cops got in the building. And some of those were at the cops. So yeah, the cops not acting aggressively, continuing to act aggressively after they got in that building probably accounts for... Uh, maybe up to 10 of the people dying. But he had shot the vast majority of the people he shot before the cops ever got in the building. So yeah, the cops screwed up. But the cops screw up is not the, the reason most of those people in Uvalde got shot. Most of the people in Uvalde got shot because the school policy was, if an active shooter comes here, we're going to let him shoot us until the cops come stop it. And that's a, that's that's a that's been failing for 40 years. That was Stockton, California's plan in 1989 when he shot 35 there the plans of schools today is either we're just going to let you come shoot it well it's generally we're going to let you come shoot us until the cops stop it now, that's whether that's a patrol cop we have to call or an sro that's somewhere on campus if it's a middle or a high school shooting it, all, over 95 percent it's going to be one of your students doing the shooting well they know you have an sro and they know who the sro is So they're not going to go find the SRO and start shooting right in front of the SRO. They're going to go to a different place on campus. So people think we have an SRO at the school, so we're safe. No, I can show you a list of 11 schools that were attacked, even though they had an SRO because the student's going to go to a different building, a different place on campus. So the SRO is not going to hear it or see it. They're going to have to get called on the radio, just like a patrol cop.
0: How long does it usually take to respond? And I know that I hear you know, these response numbers, but what's the what's the entire timeline that somebody uh, has to go through in order to get to a scene and start ticking out that active killer?
1: It's probably going to be four to 12 minutes. Uh, when you research these attacks, what's what's usually fairly easy to find relatively soon is what time the first 911 call went in and what time the first officer arrived at the location what's harder to find is, okay, when did the first shot happen? Because what, what I've found is there's there's somewhere between a one to four minute delay between the first shot of an attack and the first 911 call. And that surprises a lot of people. They think, why don't they call sooner? Well, they're getting shot at, you know, Then you got different things, different priorities on your mind. The fastest one I know of was 46 seconds, and that's Fairchild Air Force Base. And I'll, I'll play that. I actually have that the shooter's movement dubbed with the 911 calls, dubbed with the police dispatch to, sh- to show you the delay there. Um, and that's that was one of the best responses, Fairchild Air Force Base. The first call went in at 46 seconds. It only took the dispatcher about 15 or 16 seconds to turn that into a radio call to police. Andy Brown, God love him, a military police officer on duty at Fairchild Air Force on that day. He was on bike patrol, not cool bike patrol, 10-speed bike patrol. Went on Harley Patrol. He pedaled his bike a quarter of a mile and got there and shot the guy in about a minute and a half after he got the call. So that's one of the fastest 911 calls, fastest dispatch turnarounds, and most aggressive, fast, quick police responses. And we still had a victim count of 26 people. Had Andy Brown been in the building and heard the first shot, he could have ended it probably with two victims. But even with the best phone call dispatch and police response, we're still going to be well up in the double digits. Because he's generally, what I find as a planning factor is, the active shooter is going to shoot somebody every three to five seconds in the first minute, every six to eight seconds in the second minute, every 10 to 12 seconds in the third minute. And generally, his shoot rate of people, of new victims, will decline the longer his attack goes unless he happens upon a pocket of people hiding somewhere. So that first one in two minutes is the most critical uh, to save lives. And there's there's almost no way a cop who doesn't isn't right there when it starts, we can get one there in two minutes.
0: So, Ed, when we do this event in March, are you going to walk us through some of these historical events, show us exactly how they happened and and how they went wrong?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, wrong and right. I'll show some of both. So basically what I've got planned right now is in the morning from nine to noonish. We're going to do a study of the active shooter, so we'll talk about the importance of time. We'll look back and see what's happened most often in past attacks, who the shooter is, what kind of weapons he has, start locations for different attacks at schools, churches. Then we'll look at a variety of attacks to study them and pull out lessons learned, both good and bad, again, from schools, churches, businesses, government events, outdoor locations. And then we'll look at how to plan for them, both both as individuals and as organizations. Like how should, how should schools, churches, businesses base their response plan? And then after lunch, we'll go in specifically, okay, again, what I teach is your, your two choices are fight or flee if you find yourself in this location. So because of the audience that you're bringing me to talk to, after lunch, we're okay. For those of us who think we'll be armed. When this happens, specifically fighting with a gun, what are some considerations? So we'll look at, again, mindset, understanding the attack and the attacker and the environment in which we will have to fight him, gear choices, training options, and engagement considerations that most people don't think about. Because most people that do training, most armed citizens, in my experience, that do tr- do training beyond the minimum, they're focused on the mugger. Because statistically, that is what's most li- what we're most likely to have to use our gun against for armed citizens in public. This is a completely different fight than that, so we have to understand that, and it may change the way our mindset, our gear, our engagement, and our training. So that's what we'll end up with. Is specifically for those of us that carry a pistol. How can we be better prepared if it kicks off in a location that we're at?
0: So the seminar is called Active Shooter Threat and Response. It's a special seminar Buckeye Firearms Association will be hosting. Uh, with uh, Ed Monk. This is going to be Saturday, March 23rd at the McCoy Center in Hilliard, Ohio. We're selling tickets right now, regular price $99, early bird $69. You've got to get those tickets now if you want that early bird lower price. Go to BuckeyeFarms.org. We have information there. There's information in our newsletter, or you can click on the event link to find out all the information about this event and sign up. So get your tickets now. Ed, I know that we've only scratched the surface. You've got hours of information to share. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we sign off?
1: No, that's it. Uh, We talked, we basically summarized here a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about uh, at the event. But most people think they understand the active shooter, but they don't. Because we've had 20 attacks in the last 21 months. We've almost had one a month for the last 21 months. And it's constantly in the news. And they think, well, I hear about it all the time, so I must understand it. But, but most humans don't. They don't understand the attack, the attacker, how important math is in it. And so that helps us formulate a plan. And they'll get, I think they're going to get a lot out of uh, the day, the 23rd of March, when I'm up there. And I appreciate y'all inviting me up.
0: Well, Ed, I appreciate your spending some time with us today on the podcast. I'm looking forward to the 23rd. So we'll see you then.
1: Thanks, Dane. I'll see you up there in March.
0: That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.